<laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello. I thought that other music was very um, soccer stadium-ish. It was. Yeah. yeah. It was good. Should we switch out the Read Out Loud theme song? Maybe. Yeah. We might. We might want to do that. Uh, anyway, welcome everybody. Uh, I guess we're, are we? We're not. I guess we are taping, but we're gonna. Um, we're gonna. So we usually do this. We usually do this. I mean, we're doing this live. We do this usually. Um, well, we have a, an audience of one. Our producer Teresa, who's usually um, listening to us uh, drone on and on each Thursday morning when we record this podcast. But now we have this lovely audience. So thank you so much for for being here. Um, I don't know. We're just going to do this. Do it. We're going to so, do it. So I created a new opening for this week's podcast, which I'm going to do. So we're just going to get started. Um, and there will be audience participation. Clap your clappy hands off, please. Here we go. <laughs> All right. Live from the beautiful stateroom high above the city of Boston, this is The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. I'm Allison DeAngelis. And I'm Damian Garde. <laughs> Wow, what a what a reaction. Yeah. Adam has been waiting all year no, to that's use that voice and to record this live episode where we will not only be talking about what's been happening at the Stat Summit, we will be talking about what's been happening this news this week in biotech news. And we're gonna be quizzing y'all and you will have an opportunity to do a little QA with us. So I hope that you're all awake yep. caffeinated. Yes, there will be audience participation. So be ready for that. Well, should we jump right into the news um, with in vivo gene editing and Intellia yeah. this week? Yeah, I think. Um, um, oh, we you know, I didn't. Oh, no, it's fine. We're, we're seeing stuff <laughs> up here. Um, yeah, I think you know uh, some of the news this week. We saw uh, Intellia Therapeutics got an FDA clearance to start a phase three study of a CRISPR-based in vivo gene therapy uh, in a disease that Damien knows well, ATTRCM. I will not try to pronounce the entire thing. Um, this is actually their second uh, FDA clearance for an in vivo CRISPR-based therapy, which, you know, I mean, is a, you know, it's is a landmark, uh, you know, it's an achievement given, particularly given some of the concerns that the FDA has had about CRISPR-based therapies and gene therapies, them allowing them to start this phase three study. Again, this is, you know, genome editing inside the body as opposed to outside the body. Yeah, it's interesting in that it's plainly like a medical milestone but also arguably, or the, the long-term commercial value is something that I think is reasonable to consider. Um, ATTRCM, as you mentioned, is a progressive uh, cardiovascular disease for which there is currently one approved treatment that seems to work pretty well. There's another likely to win approval next year and a third conceivably that could, um, I guess a year after that, if everything works out. And so it's, yeah, a medical milestone that may not actually live up to sort of the commercial prospects because while the CRISPR therapy is ostensibly, if it works, curative, it would be a one-time treatment that theoretically would halt the progress of this disease. In practice, once that arrives, these competing medicines will have already been on the market for a long time. And if the data hold up, will presumably be widely used in this disease that is more prevalent than was once thought. And so you wonder, or I wonder, I guess, um, whether patients and physicians will want what is ostensibly a curative medicine, but is irreversible by virtue of being a one-time treatment, mm -hmm. and which we don't know how much it will cost, probably won't be cheap, none of these medicines are. And it occurred to me that this is kind of, we're seeing this to some extent with hemophilia in gene therapy, 
where there's this huge medical milestone of gene therapies for hemophilia that are one-time treatments, ostensibly curative, but the, I don't wanna say problem, but there are also good drugs for hemophilia that everybody kind of knows well in that treatment space. And I think that might hamper the, I don't know, the, the story of gene therapy and more recently genome editing is one of like these life-changing developments, but the actual practical practice of medicine might kind of stand in the way of them taking place. Yeah. Well, it seems like a, a kind of a key example of the potential like promises and pitfalls of like gene therapies and gene editing with regards to pricing, where you're going to potentially have this like uh, environment in which the people that can pay will have a potentially curative therapy. And then the people that can't afford it or their insurance won't cover it will have a regimen that they will have to take for ostensibly the rest of their lives, um, which is you know still not inexpensive in a lot of these cases, but is um, is available to them, thankfully, not the same as having a quote unquote cure in this case. Yeah, and, and I mean, just the, you know, it's an example of how we, you know, we do pay a lot of attention to these groundbreaking scientific uh, platforms and new technologies. But at the end of the day, they do have to compete against other medicines. And, yeah. um, you know, this is a case too where uh, Intelia hasn't uh, actually disclosed what the design of the phase three study is going to look like, what the endpoints will be, how long it will be. But you can, it's it's a pretty high bar that like Bridge Bio has set, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have shown a cardiovascular benefit with a pill. And so conceivably, that's the bar that Intelia is going to have to show or prove. And doing those studies are, their big studies are very expensive. They're long. So we'll see what they what they say about yeah, I mean, we just had John Marvinori on stage yesterday, former CEO of Alnylam, which has its own TTR-CM cardiomyopathy right. yeah. uh, product. One which just got a surprise rejection from the FDA, which he said on stage, you know, he was, was disappointed, thinks the FDA obviously made the wrong decision, but the company has long put its hope in kind of a second generation product that it's easier to administer. So we have a, this really dynamic environment happening with TTR cardiomyopathy. One that I don't think I foresaw a couple of years ago, to be honest. Sure. Yeah, zooming out, I mean, these are commercial issues for the companies that have invested money in this, but if you have this disease, which was once thought to be rare and once had no approved medicines, yeah. it's good news that people are competing to save your life functionally. Um, so in the next five years, I don't know how those dynamics will shake out, but it will certainly be beneficial to people who have so yeah. other note or uh, other noteworthy uh, news this week, Damien was uh, Brainstorm uh, announcing yesterday they've been developing a stem cell treatment for ALS. Uh, they withdrew yeah. their BLA. Yeah, I mean it's been a saga. Brainstorm has a stem cell therapy for ALS called Neuron, um, which has been in development for it feels like most of my adult life, but. Um, <laughs> It failed in its uh, pivotal clinical trial, which read out something like three years ago. The company insisted that the data from that were enough to merit FDA consideration and ultimately FDA approval. I mean, to zoom through like Sturm and Drang and lots of drama and um, vitriol on the internet, frankly, that came to a head when the FDA actually reviewed it and released uh, the conversations that it had had with Brainstorm over the years and the details of the data from that study and weighed in on it at an advisory committee panel um, at which the agency's independent advisors were, I mean, I was going to say savage. That seems whatever. I don't <laughs> want to put too much on it, but, but tore apart the case for this medicine, not only being beneficial, but even functioning the way that Brainstorm said it was. It was, I think, the most decisively negative FDA panel uh, 
discussion that I've ever seen in my life. And so unsurprisingly, uh, it's likely that the FDA is going to reject it. And maybe somewhat surprisingly, what we learned this week is that Brainstorm seems to have accepted that reality. Yeah, uh, you know, and I mean, the, the question then becomes, you know, they say they want to do another study. Um, and they've done two relatively large studies already that both have not worked. And so they would need to do another one. And the question becomes, how do they pay for it? Yeah. Um, it's a, I mean, yeah. The stock is, yeah. They're a penny stock at they this are, point. They are, and, and right. they don't have a lot of money. I, I did listen to actually to the conference call this morning because I, I hadn't gotten a chance to listen to it last night or yesterday. Um, you know, they say that they're talking to some investors and they're thinking about getting some grant funding to try to pay for the study. It's going to be a challenge for them to find a way to to pay for it, given the track record and given how sort of just like you said, Damien, sort of decisively negative. Um, People have been, or you know, scientists and the FDA have been on the data so far. It doesn't seem to offer a lot of hope. But you know, uh, ALS is obviously an awful disease, uh, and new therapies are needed. So if they can put the money money together, raise the money to run the study, they will do that. Obviously, that will take a good amount of time. It's interesting. I mean, the brainstorm story isn't over. I don't think, um, but it's interesting to kind of look back on how we got here because. While it is definitely in doubt whether neurone is beneficial to these patients, there's no question, one, Adam, as you said, the, the need for a treatment that could change the lives of people with ALS, which is universally fatal despite um, a few approved medicines recently. But the company's conduct of the study, their conduct after the study, um, the way they interface with the FDA, as we learned, it feels like there's an object lesson here somewhere. The way the company interacted with patient advocacy um, and the, what's the right word? The mobilization that took place, often based on what we later learned was incomplete information provided to patients that led patients to pressuring the FDA to approve this medicine that it's pretty clear they're not going to approve. I don't know what the lesson of Brainstorm is, but I do think it's something worth paying attention to. And once this shakes out, there will be like things to pick apart. Yeah. Well, and the mobilization, though, of certain like sects of the ALS community. Yeah. This was this is a therapy that the ALS community is not universal. Yeah, it split. It on. really did splinter. It really has it splintered the, the advocacy community. It really did. Yeah. In a way that surprised me personally, because the ALS community has been so unified behind so many of the other medications that have been put forward, like tofersin and like Amelix's drug. What is that? AMX zero zero five three. Wait, you say tof you say tofersin? I say Topherson. I say Topherson. Do you say Topherson? Should I? Okay, I'm going to lead us into our next <laughs> segment, y'all. <laughs> so you may have seen on Twitter this week um, <laughs> a reflection of a debate that started in the stat newsroom, um, which has divided us. It has fractured us, really. There are so many things. How do we pronounce them in the drug industry? Um, and one of the most popular that we've been talking I about. I think we have, a, we have a title set. This is going to be the audience participation portion, or at least a little bit, yes. right, of this so, podcast. Can we have the title slide up, please? All right. Oh, wait, well, well, we're not going, we're going to go right there. Okay, we'll do this. I can't backtrack. Okay, you, we're going to settle this once and for all. And I'm going to ask each one, you know, I'm going to ask you kind of in groups to shout out how you think that we pronounce some of these words in the biotech and healthcare industry, starting with one of the most popular products on the market right now and one of the most popular mechanisms. How do you pronounce this word? How do you? Come on. 
One at a time. One at a time. Wait a second. Wait, wait. Is that just Adam? Is that just Adam hearing the overwhelming so, GLP one chorus right. that just so sprung I, out? So a round of applause if you think it's GLP one. Okay. Right, I'm out of here. Yeah. Well, okay, that does it for Adam on the readout lab. See, Do we I, have any glip ones in the audience? Glip Whoa. one. Whoa. <laughs> I, wow, I don't know why I say glip clap. one, but I've always said glip. I don't know. I just, maybe it's because we all are getting used to words without vowels these days. Okay. You know, like, so maybe I'm just sort of looking at I'm it trying. and saying. Damien, you've been you've Saying been that silent. There's, a, there's an I in there somewhere. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, it's just plainly an acronym followed by a number. So you <laughs> say GLP-1. But I think what's interesting, Adam, is your glip refusal, <laughs> my, which, I, which you would say in conversation, I thought it was that you were taking a bold stand in the face of history for this. But only when we pointed out, hey, why do you say it like that? Were you like, wait, do other people say GLP-1? Which is curious to me because I don't know. The world I, has long since weighed in on this. I, I almost prefer glip better, but. OK, well, let's move on to our next one. Okay, please clap if you say Sanofi. Interesting. That's what All I right. say. I say Sanofi. I say Sanofi. Is that the New Englander in us? I don't know, but it's it's. Is it's, it clap if you say Sanofi? Wow. Okay. Wow. I'm in the minority on both of those. I think. I, I also know. swear that I've run into people who work for Sanofi and Sanofi. Some of these words are just like how it. you where you put the emphasis. Yeah. On the, okay. On the syllables. Next. Another weight loss uh, novel product. Uh, clap, please, or, or cheer if you say semaglutide. Okay. Is it, is it semaglutide? Is that our crowd, Unison? Do we have. I, se I say semaglutide. See, I, I am in the minor. I am. Also, do we have any naysayers? Is What's there an wrong errant, with me? Is there I... an errant pronunciation in the audience? Is it semaglutide? No. <laughs> no. 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 No one does that. Sorry. No. No one's <laughs> that. No. No one's that awful. Okay. Next one. Oop. This one is hard. This one I this know. One this is one not divides. Hard to me. This one divides a lot of people. Okay. I think. Adam, you call out. Which? What is your preferred option? I say dystrophin. Crap! If you say dystrophin. Okay. But a lot of people say you do. You can. Dystrophin? Who says yeah. dystrophin? People. Other people. I you say you say dystrophin, or in like scientific See, instruction, I've heard, it, I've heard other people pronounce it that way, but, but I say dystrophin. But dystrophin feels—it's more familiar, like an old friend of yours. But dystrophin, <laughs> I think, is its its legal name. Yeah. Dystrophin sounds like a it robotic, like dystrophin arch sounds, enemy. Dystrophin sounds a little bit more sinister. It does. It sounds a little bit more sinister. I don't yeah, know what it is it about does. that. Just, it, it does. does. It does. Yes, it you. does sound like that. Right. It does sound dystrophian. Okay. okay. Like this is just an etymology podcast though. Like, yeah. Across the river, we have is it Niber? Please clap if you think Niber. Oh, oh. Oh, not a lot of Nibers. Wow. Okay, clap if you think it's Niber. Who no, wait, no one knows, in other no words. No one knows. Or no does, one has any idea. Wait, is there another pronunciation? Or N-I-B-R? Yeah. Really? That's too long. Which is unpleasant to say. I mean, they're renaming it, right? And I think we've gotten to the crux as to why. Maybe this is why. It's not a pronounceable acronym. And when you spell it out, it sounds terrible. I don't know. It sounds like a, a legal charge or something. So um, we did Jay Bradner's work for him. They didn't have to do all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, he's not there anymore. But oh, okay. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> NIBR 
sounds like, I mean, my my theory about why people are saying like glip one or Adam is saying glip one is because it's like it rolls off of the tongue easier than spelling out the acronym. But now now I stand corrected. So many people are saying N-I-B-R. I don't know. I don't know what to do with y'all. All right. And then to top it off, I think this is our last one. Um, Adam, wait, what are your I say Moonjaro, but I, I'm sure I'm wrong, so. Who, clap your hands if you say Moonjaro. Moonjaro. <laughs> are there any other pronunciations of Moonjaro? I think Moonjaro is what they say on the television commercials. Um, is it really? I believe so, yeah. That's very strange. To... What I've learned out of this is this that is I- like, is This that... is eliciting some chatter in the audience. I'm seeing some shaking of heads. Of... What I learned from this is that I, I pronounce way too many words wrong. That's what well, I learned. So. It's not like you have a podcast. And I have a podcast, yeah, so it's really bad. It's bad. All right. Are we done? Oh, oh no, oh. our last one. Okay, this one I don't agree with any of the, the naysayers on this one. I say Bayer. Clap your hands if you say Bayer. Thank you. Interesting. Thank you. Okay. I think the German thing yeah. is a little bit Yeah, well, though. I think so Bayer being the German pronunciation. Which oh, do we have any Germans in the audience that say Bayer? That. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're standing strong. I appreciate and you. clapping Germanically, Teutonically. <laughs> you're I not German, that. but okay. <laughs> I feel like that one is, there's a sort of, I don't know. It like it, it is a signal of a certain like pharmaceutical aristocracy to be like, oh, I say Bayer. Because Bayer, of course, in the United States is associated with over-the-counter products. Whereas if mm. you are like a serious-minded science person, then you refer to Bayer, the global conglomerate I don't headquartered know, in wherever. I don't know why to me that feels like the Katherine Hepburn, you know, yeah, um, a, the, the Philadelphia accent. A transatlantic kind of accent. A transatlantic yeah, yeah, yeah. accent yeah. Um, equivalent for the biopharma industry yeah, it's is true. Bayer. Okay. Which is, as a person who, whatever, is fluid <laughs> with respect to Bayer buyer, you kind of have to let the person you're talking to set the tone. You don't want to come in with a hard buyer to a Bayer person, <laughs> and then vice versa. You don't want to look like a rude. See, this is the point Bayer. during this is the point during the normal recording of the podcast where we would just stop. yeah, just where cut Teresa this off. just cuts yeah. us where off. our producer would be like, "You guys are going off on crazy tangents." <laughs> Let's. But what if you were to focus, say that, people, that buyer is the buyer it of gets, a biopharma there, Yeah, company. there's a who's on first potential that's really damaging. Um, that's why I don't go to Germany. I do I, also want to- I know the GSK folks in the audience are really happy that they call, they call themselves GSK now, right? G but maybe, Emma Wamsley here, so maybe, I mean, now we know why they changed from GlaxoSmithKline to GSK because it's, although I would call it JISC. You would call it JISC. Yes. Should we get I will do that from now on. You're now JISC in my world. Okay. Well, we do also have Nick wandering around because we will be taking audience questions. This is your time to ask Adam his candid thoughts on- On how to you know, pronounce words. You know what I was thinking of? Adam, we're almost coming up to the time period where you're going to be talking about your best and your worst CEO. Oh, don't get me started on that yet. I haven't even oh. thought about it. I mean, somebody a, from the audience can get him started. Uh, <laughs> Seriously, someone from the audience might be on the questions. <laughs> anyone want? Anyone have questions? Okay. We have a hand raised over here. Autumn uh, Blackman from Zenoprint. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, so my question is about neurodegenerative diseases. We were just talking about the brainstorm failure. We have also seen some high-profile failures over the last couple of years. So, what do you feel like the future is? for neurodegenerative diseases moving forward. What's exciting you? And many things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's, ex well, I don't want to say it's unexciting, but the future is and feels like has always been 
genetics, which feels like a very 1971 sentence to say right now. But so many uh, treatments for not just neurodegenerative disease, but neuroscience feel like spaghetti at a wall, which is gradually seeming to change, but not across the board, and rather disease by disease, like the is it Tofersen we decided? The ALS treatment <laughs> that was... Still, I'm still saying Tofersen. Oh, I like that better. Okay. Tofersen sounds like a surname. Um, that treatment, which is an ALS drug specifically targeted to a form of ALS, and like, you know, not a game-changing efficacy profile or whatever, but the, its existence and its approval seems like a breadcrumb trail to more things like that. Whether that would also happen, or well, it hasn't happened, in like Huntington's disease, where one mm -hmm. would think there'd be a clear pathway, I guess, is reason to like pump the brakes on too much enthusiasm. But I do think whether Alzheimer's or ALS, um, there are signs of progress in the long held goal of actually targeting what the disease is, actually understanding what the disease is rather than just its symptoms and going after them. But I mean, I, and yeah. I think that we've seen, I mean, a nice shift in the trend where I mean, the 2010s and particularly, you know, the the mid 2010s, there was a period where we saw pharma completely, I mean, move away from neuro as a, as a space. I mean, not only Alzheimer's, but more broadly. Um, now we have products that are in development and we have companies that are being you know, formed and funded that are working on frontotemporal dementia, Huntington's, Parkinson's, you know, all of these different neurological diseases um, in a way that you know, the last decade there was kind of a dearth of that. So I think that that's particularly exciting and I, I think exciting for patients with various neurological diseases. Adam, anything to what? add? No, not really. Questions. <laughs> I did want to ask you guys. Oh, wait, do we have an audience question? Oh, right over here. Hi, I'm Fausto. Slowly over the summer becoming like the resident de facto question asker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so first thing I want to thank you guys for doing the uh, the like pronunciation. Uh, English is my second language, and I don't know if anyone else in the audience. This is how I feel about every word. <laughs> no, wait, did we give you any clarity, or are you, are you just as confused as ever? I'm less confused now because I speak English. Okay. Um, there we go. <laughs> so if you had the accent marks that we have in Spanish, you wouldn't have to worry about anything. That's true. So that would be oh, yeah. No, <laughs> That's a yeah. task we can't take on ourselves. <laughs> so my actual question is, you know, there's a lot of exciting things going on, especially with AI, for example, and target discovery and drug development. So it'd be really nice to get some of your general thoughts on what trends are like, what, there's some pros that came out and also some cons, if you guys want to discuss that, uh, general topic that I'd be fun to discuss. Thank you. Oh gosh. I feel like uh, the three of us, uh, and maybe I should just speak for myself. I mean, we sit, we're so focused on, the three of us are, are more focused on, oftentimes on drug development, late stage drug development. So um, the source of, the, the, of, of where the drugs get created is, Something that still up, and we have a, a team of uh, reporters at Stat who do a lot of AI and, and other sort of health tech reporting. That yeah. Probably do a better and could probably give you a more intelligent answer than we could. Um, I will say that I, I I mean I do find it interesting. I mean you know John Maragonori yesterday mm -hmm. actually in your during your talk talked about you know he was talking about what are the truly disruptive technologies and AlphaFold he called out was AlphaFold. one of them right yeah, yeah. Um, you know which is the protein right I'm. And he, and he protein. coupled it with, I mean, being one of the key, you know, in, innovations along with CRISPR and, and his, his favorite RNA interference um, of the last, you know, couple of decades. Yeah. I think the jury is still out, honestly. I, I, I do. It's interesting to me when I do see that because I, I think at the end of the day, you know, drugs still have to go through all the testing they have to go through and they have to prove their benefit in patients. And that's ultimately what matters. And I know it matters. 
um, you know, cost-wise and, and the speed and where you can, how you can discover, you know, if, if you can, you know, if you can do all this work in, with AI, with proteins, you can probably mm -hmm. find new targets and new drugs. Um, I, I do find like some of the companies that I think that sort of, that sort of hype or I want to say hype because that's a, maybe a negative term, but sort of rely on a lot of that. At the end of the day, I mean, if you really peer into it, sometimes they're still doing sort of old fashioned drug discovery. Um, it kind of is maybe has uh, a little bit of uh, um, embellishment of AI, but uh, so maybe Daya, maybe that is my my hot take, which is not very hot. <laughs> if, I, if we're still taking questions, there's two more audience questions. Oh, yeah, let's go ahead. another audience question. Yeah. Hey guys, Christiana, Real Chemistry. Um, we're getting into the end of the year. You guys cover a lot of you know different swaths of biopharma. What's a story that you guys wish you covered this year, or Ooh. something you're looking to cover more next year? Oh God. I don't even know where to start with that. Yeah, that's this a good year question. has flown. This year has really flown by. Um, what is something that I wish I covered this year? Hmm. All I can think of is the things that I get roped into covering constantly, like GLP one <laughs> drugs and Alzheimer's disease, and the convocation between the two. What else are we missing? I do think I feel like I've said this before, maybe in this exact context, but like pain is is important. Mm. Um, I'm feeling it currently and. Uh, <laughs> That's, it's been such a like woebegone pursuit for drug development for so long, and that seems to be gradually changing, albeit the time it takes to prove that a medicine effectively treats pain of any type is long, and the biology of it is complicated and constantly surprising and disappointing, but it does seem like that's moving forward to where it will be. Um, I don't know the stats, but there's been like no new approved uh, pain drug of a novel mechanism in something like before I was born. Um, and that seems bad, uh, and that seems to be also gradually changing. So I feel like that's something that I ought to pay attention to, um, ne whether next year or just as time goes on, because um, you know, drilling down into rare and fatal diseases is obviously very important, but you know, the vast majority of people walk around mm -hmm. with things like cardiovascular disease or with chronic pain, and it's something that, not necessarily the pharmaceutical industry, but even just like science in general has struggled with for so long. So any movements, there are probably worth paying attention to. Yeah. And I would say some of the stuff that we've continued, I mean, you know, I think a lot of people identified this year as a big year for gene therapy, maybe on more on the, um, the rollout sort of commercial side, like can you make, and I think maybe kind of thinking about it now, looking back, like it's probably, that's more, even maybe even be more relevant into a 2024 story, given the fact that, you know, highly likely, right, that the Vertex CRISPR gene therapy in sickle cell um, and the Bluebird gene therapy and sickle cell will both be approved um, towards the end of the year or early next year. And so I think that is going to be a real, you know, because that's a sizable patient population uh, in the United States. Uh, it's a patient population that historically has had, um, you know, hard time getting access to medical care and has distrust of the healthcare system. Um, it's a large, largely Medicaid patient population. So all of those issues in terms of like how you get uh, you know, how you get a gene therapy or a CRISPR-based therapy to a sickle cell patient, um, the cost and all those things are going to play out in 2024. So that'll be, that's something that, you know, I'm, we'll cover it. I'm sure other people will be covering it too. But uh, I think that'll be really one of, a big, big news story next year. I think we have time for one last question. Great. We have a question over here from Ahmad Naban, um, who's a 2023 stat wonderkin. Yay! Hey, alumni! <laughs> Uh, I understand a general question as uh, pertaining to the comment about genetics. And so 
there, we see a lot of you know companies centering on big data or AI saying that they're going to discover new targets. And there are only 23,000 genes, which sounds like a lot, but it's not really a lot on the genomic scale nowadays. So do you guys feel like the big breakthroughs will come from new target discoveries, or is it really, has it really become an engineering problem about we know what the targets are, and it's KRAS or whatever, and it's really about you know, effectively and precisely modulating those targets? Probably so. I feel like, in, I have no expertise in this, but talking to people who do, a lot of skepticism about whether it's AI or whatever kind of computational mechanism for target discovery, people will say, like, well, like you said, that's not the issue. We kind of know what the targets are. The issue is um, figure out how to hit them. And then yeah. I'll hear from people saying, like, for computational things, even like AlphaFold, that like, well, actually, drug design is not so much the issue. The issue is we keep running terrible clinical trials that don't tell us what we actually want to know. And so good drugs probably, or functional drugs probably, get left behind by that virtue. And that is one area where, I think someone was on stage saying it before, Clinical trials are something that just get more expensive, more complicated, more prone to failure, despite all of the technological advances in the earliest, earliest stages um, of drug development, such that like, if, to your point, these computational tools revolutionize drug discovery in some kind of way, if you don't fix the middle period where you find out whether the drug can actually help someone, you've just done a lot of math, which is cool, I suppose, but yeah. Yeah, I agree. On the startup side, I, you know, this was obviously the last couple of years have been a, a tricky um, financial market for startups. And so you saw a lot of startups who were trying to out-license, you know, their potential programs, you know, particularly around like new targets. And I think that that was an area where a lot of buyers weren't biting because I, I agree with Damien. I don't think that the issue so much is target discovery versus the, the delivery and figuring out how to get there and how to actually address those genetic targets um, for all the innovation that we have. That seems to still be the biggest linchpin in my mind. All right. Outro. Outro. All right. Well, this does it. Oh. Wait, sorry. We have an. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> when the boss has a question, when we have to answer. When the boss has a question, everything stops. Microphone. <laughs> well, we'll repeat the question, boss man. We've all been sitting here. You've been with us the last 24 hours uh, watching the summit. I'd love to hear you give like a quick recipe for me on what surprised you, what you liked, what you didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> really I, but one of my favorite moments was when uh, Rick, when you asked Priscilla Chan about her learning physics. Yes. <laughs> Uh, during you know she they you know we, yesterday we had the big announcement about the Chan Zuckerberg initiative uh, forming a new hub in New York a research hub in New York and our boss you asked and I thought it was you know like the, if 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 one of us would say oh yeah I want to learn physics in my spare time we'd probably go online but then she ended up getting like some I believe it was Stephen Quake is Stephen it? Quake yes. right like you know like <laughs> the, the world renowned physicist in Stanford who like is tutoring her in physics so. I thought that was that was interesting to me. I think one of the things that made me chuckle yesterday was um, Lori Glimcher during her talk about the separation of Dana Farber from its longtime partnership uh, with uh, Mass General Brigham, uh, pointing <laughs> out that her her father was you know uh, worked at Mass General. She did her training at Mass General. Her son worked at Mass General. Works at Mass General, um, and that her first husband worked at Mass General. Um, <laughs> my, my, my takeaway from that was that the relationship between Dana-Farber and the Brigham is um, 
tense. Yeah. My my takeaway was that the, that's going to be a very interesting Thanksgiving yes. dinner. Yeah, it'll be. A, it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> that that caught my attention, Damien. What about you? I enjoyed in your conversation with John Marigonori him saying functionally that all the bums need to get a job in the biotech industry <laughs> yes. rather than yeah. assuming that they will be CEOs of whatever their promising idea was. I'm sure I'm mischaracterizing that. I'm sure he gives other <laughs> advice. But I did appreciate that candor, and it's probably um, useful as someone who is struggling even to do this job right now but wouldn't be able to without actually starting at the bottom in our industry, and it's probably valuable in that one as well. So All right, nice. wow. so, so Rick doesn't have a mic, so we'll... We'll, well that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinato and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. <laughs> and our theme music is by Brian Joel. I, I skipped the lines. We don't know this by heart. <laughs> we have to like look at it. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what your favorite um, pronunciation is for something in the biopharma industry, you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. Oh, it's on the script. Or whatever <laughs> platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So now that you heard, now you saw this, now you're never going to listen to us again, right? What? Okay. I'll... Get him off the stage. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>